Chapter 1. Altars and Ensigns. Sermon 149. Preached Thursday, the 27th of February, 1556. On Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 10. Reading from Deuteronomy 26, 18 through 27, verse 10. And the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to walk in all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations he has made, in praise, and in name, and in honor, and that you will be a holy people to the Lord your God, as he has spoken. Then Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments I command you this day. So shall it be on the day when you will pass over the Jordan to the land the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and plaster them with lime. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you have passed over, in order that you may enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. So shall it be when you cross the Jordan. You shall set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you this day, and you shall plaster them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of whole, uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt sacrifices to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And Moses and the Levitical priest spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, and do his commandments and his statutes which I command you this day. In yesterday's lecture, Moses, having exhorted the people to serve God, declared that the covenant he had made with them was to their great profit. The more God bestows on us, the more particularly we are bound to give ourselves over wholly to him, if we are not devoid of all sense and reason. But yet, for all that, even though we see that God is so liberal toward us, are we moved to offer ourselves in obedience to him? No, indeed. For this reason Moses said to the Jews that they had been chosen to be in praise, in name, and in glory as a people separated out from the rest of the world and unto God. Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19. Some expound this to mean that they were in praise and glory, so that God might be glorified. This, however, is a hard and forced exposition. It is, of course, true that God has chosen his people for his own name, as the end for which he created all things, as it is often said in the Holy Scripture. And the church was built especially for the purpose of exalting the name of God, as it is said in the prophet Isaiah. And as St. Paul also leads us to understand in the first chapter of Ephesians, where he treats this thing at great length. It is therefore true in itself that God adopted the Jews so that they might know his exceeding favor and goodness, and that the glory due him might be given him. In this place, however, Moses has an eye to something we have already touched on, namely that the people might be moved and inflamed to discharge their duties because God has called them for no other reason than to utter forth the infinite treasures of his mercies. And for this reason he says, God has placed you this day in praise, in name, and in honor, as he had earlier said. 
What nation is so noble and of such dignity, which has its God so near to it as your God has made himself familiar to you, to govern you? End quote. This, then, was a dignity God had bestowed upon the Jews above the rest of the world. This should have stirred them up all the more to be obedient to the will and the word of God. All things considered, though, we shall find that God can hope for nothing at our hands or receive anything from us but that we have all things from him. Consider, when we have taken great pains to exalt the name of God, will he be increased at all by it? What can we do for him? Surely, we of our own nature cannot but blaspheme his name, and we are the reason why it is blasphemed. If he will draw any good out of us, he must first put it there. But when God has granted us the grace to glorify him, do we bring anything to him? Or does he receive any profit from us? Of course not. Yet, in the meantime, he continues to pour out his benefits so that we have all from him, as I have told you before. So then, with good reason, Moses declares to the Jews that they were called to praise, to renown, and to honor. He upbraids them with their unthankfulness if they do not endeavor to serve God with all their power, since he has been so liberal with them. And this also applies to us nowadays. For seeing that it pleases God to imprint his image in us, is this not a preeminence that he gives us above all other creatures in the world, calling us into the company of angels and into the body of our Lord Jesus Christ? Since he goes before us with his goodness, what remains but that we should give ourselves wholly to him, and show that, seeing he has filled us with his glory, we will not cause his name to be made light of, nor will we permit the doctrine of salvation he has given us to be reproached that the unfaithful should make a scorn of it. Let us therefore give all diligence to this, as we see we are warned in this place. And that is the very thing at which Moses aims when he adds that when the people have passed over Jordan, and have come into the land promised to them, and have it in full possession, they shall then set up great stones, and write on them an abridgment of the law. And secondly, that they shall erect also an altar, both to give thanks to God, and to testify that he had fulfilled the promise he had made in former times to their fathers. This, I say, is the intent and meaning of Moses, namely that the people should not only give thanks to God one time, but that they should also do it afresh when they come into the land promised them, and that they should ratify what they had earlier confessed, which is that they owed all homage to God for that land, because it was given to them of his free bestowed goodness and not gotten by their own power or befallen to them by any kind of chance or by the gift or help of men. Spokesman for God We have to note precisely what Moses says, that he and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, quote, Do what I command you, end quote. I grant that this might refer to Moses, because he was the chief servant of God in publishing the law, but it is certain that both he and the elders speak in the name and, as it were, in the person of God. And yet it would seem at first blush that this sentence is not well framed. Moses and the elders say to the people, Do what I command you. The subject of the sentence being singular rather than plural. As I have mentioned before, however, it was needful that the Jews should be taught that these things proceed not from men, but from God, who spoke through their mouths. We see then that Moses and the elders are not coming here in their own persons as attributing anything to their own worthiness, nor do they attempt to stand on their own ground to charge the people with any laws, 
but they stand as the instruments of God to set forth faithfully whatever is committed to them. Now, if Moses, who was preeminent among all the prophets as we shall see, nevertheless restrained himself with such modesty that he would not usurp to himself the authority to speak in his own name, what shall we say of those who govern the church nowadays? Do they claim to exceed Moses? Let us note, then, that pastors are not appointed to set forth whatsoever doctrine seems good to themselves, or to bring men's souls into subjection and bondage to them, or to make laws and articles of faith at their own pleasure, but rather only to bring about the rule of God, that his word may be hearkened to. Let that be noted for one point. We see, then, that all the traditions of men existing nowadays in popedom, in the place of the pure word of God, are but vain things. They must all be beaten down, and the true government of God must be established again in his church. And that government is that men hearken to him, that they submit themselves to him, that both great and small receive what is delivered in his name, and that men go no further. Let this be well noted. But at the same time, we must also note that when those who are appointed ministers of the word of God perform their office faithfully, then they may speak with masterly authority. And indeed, we hear how Moses, with the rest of the elders, says, I command you this day, keep my statutes. It is not for a mortal creature to advance himself so high, no, but because Moses brings nothing of his own, but is a faithful minister of God, and does nothing but expound the law even as it is given and committed to him. Therefore he does not refuse to speak as from on high, as one having all power and authority. Therefore, when we bring nothing but the pure doctrine of God, without falsifying it, without adding anything to it of our own, then we may bring into captivity all the loftiness of men, as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, so that no man can exempt himself from the doctrine set forth to him, but even those who are the greatest must submit themselves to it. The servants of God, then, must behave themselves in such a way that they are not of a fearful mind to yield themselves to the world when it rebels, and must not let themselves willingly be subdued. Rather, they must hold their own with invincible constancy, yielding to their master the honor of sovereignty and overlordship of all the world. This is what we have to bear in mind concerning this text. A Temporary Altar Now let us turn to what Moses said to them. The Jews are commanded to gather great stones and lime them over, and so to engrave the law of God upon them, that the letters might easily be read. And secondly, they are commanded to build an altar on Mount Ebal, and there to sacrifice to God. Concerning the altar, we have already said that it was a special witness on the part of that people, doing homage to God for the land they knew they held from Him. For indeed the law was there engraved, to the intent that the remembrance of the law should be renewed, and so that its teaching should be laid open and made common to all men. Also, this was so that at their first entrance into the land they might have a marker to put them in mind to say, This is a land dedicated to God. And just as princes set up their arms and ensigns in the inns and borders of their dukedoms and kingdoms, even so the ensigns of God were set up in that place, that men might say, Behold, it is the living God that has dedicated this people to himself, and has chosen them for his service, that he might be honored and called upon by them. Thus you see in effect what we have to bear in mind. But before we pass any further, 
Let us consider why it is said that they are not to make or build the altar of carved or polished stones, and that they must not lift up a hammer or any other tool upon it, but that the stones must be taken as they come to hand, without any fitting of them, so that it should be a rude heap of stones. This place has troubled many men without cause. Many have not been able to find any meaning in it without resorting to allegory, saying that when God commanded to have the altar made of rough and unhewn stone, it was to show that he takes no pleasure in any inventions of men, and that he will have no curious workmanship in his altar. This was to warn us that to serve him rightly we must never mingle in our own notions and works, just as we see it is not lawful for men to set up at their own pleasure any service for God, because he desires obedience above all things. So this sense of theirs is in itself true, though it has nothing to do with this particular text. Moses is concerned with something else, which is that there should be but one altar to sacrifice to God. We see that when the two and one-half tribes returned home after the conquest of the land of Canaan and erected an altar, they were in danger of being utterly destroyed and rooted out. For when news of it reached the rest of the tribes, they said, What does this mean, making a second altar to God? Thereupon they went forth to battle, intending to destroy the tribes that dwelt beyond Jordan and to put them to horrible slaughter. This was because God had commanded that they should make only one altar, and the reason for that was to maintain the unity of faith and agreement among the Jews. We know that although the law contains the perfect teaching of salvation, yet it is at the same time dark as we have seen. Therefore it behooved the Jews to be tied to the teaching, that they not wonder. For we see how fickle men are, so that they are easily turned aside to make various sects, and every man has his worship apart by himself. God, therefore, minded to prevent that mischief, which he saw men were given to by their sinful natures, insisted that there be only one single altar. But now if they had made an altar of hewn and squared stones, it would have lasted forever. And what would men have said about it? This is the altar on which they sacrificed to God. And thereupon they would have thought it proper service to God to sacrifice on it anew. And those who came along after would have thought that the sacrifices offered there were worth more. This would have overthrown the order God had established among that people. It would have brought in general confusion. We see what befell the hill of Samaria, as the woman who spoke to our Lord Jesus Christ declares, Did not our fathers sacrifice on this mountain? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had dwelt there, the Samaritans thought that their temple was more excellent and more holy than the temple of Jerusalem. But it was built against the will of God. It was a heathenish place. It was more full of filthiness and uncleanness than any brothel. Of course, the people thought they were doing well, but we must always consider whether God likes what we are doing, and if he does not, woe be to us. So then, because men always seem without reason to follow the examples they hear of, it was requisite that there should be no altars made of polished stones, for they would have remained in place, and there would have been sacrifices offered on them. Now we can see what abominations proceeded from this in Israel. Jeroboam, intending to maintain his estate, erected an altar in Bethel, and wanted God to be worshipped there, and sacrifices to be made to him there. He said to the people, Behold, we sacrifice to God, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. He protested that he was not serving idols, but he actually was serving them. He certainly was, for it was God's will to have his temple built in Jerusalem where it was. 
and we have seen already that he reserves authority to himself to say, You are to call upon me in that place I have chosen to have my name called upon. Deuteronomy 16.2 For it is not for men to say, Let us worship God in this place, but men must keep themselves to what he has commanded in that regard. Jeroboam, therefore, in making a second temple, brought the service of God into corruption. He distorted and falsified the true religion. Of course, he made a fair protestation, as I have mentioned, that he would change nothing in the service of God. So we see what the meaning of God is, namely, that when they arrived in the land of promise, they should sacrifice to him on Mount Ebal, and there set up an altar with such stones as came to hand, without using any workmanship, so that in time the altar would deteriorate, and that no mention of it should remain, to draw into an everlasting rule something done but for one time only. Temporary Ordinances Now, although this ceremonial law does not directly apply nowadays, yet we may gather a very profitable teaching from this place. First of all, let us note that we must not ground ourselves upon something God commanded only for a certain time, as if it ought to be observed forever. For under the law it was God's will that men should sacrifice brute beasts to him. But nowadays there is no such thing. He required that there should be incense compounded and lights set up and fire always burning on the altar. These things are now done away, and if any man renew them, they are but dung. We see how they are used in popery. When the papists come and perfume their idols' noses, they think that it is an acceptable sacrifice unto God. And when they have consumed much wax on their torches and tapers and candles, they think they have exercised a wonderful devotion. And yet all this is but a mocking of God, for it was his will to be served under the law. But if we should now go and try to light the sun, that is to say, if now, after the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world, we should yet still use those lights as in the night and in the dark, it would be a perverting of the whole order of nature. The ancient fathers walked under dark shadows, and therefore they stood in need of those aids. And when they had a light, it was to show them that they were not coming to worship God by accident or at random, but that they were guided and directed by the word of God and by his Holy Spirit. And so they were kept in line, so that they should not presume upon anything out of their own fancies. But now we have no need for all these things. Why? Because the veil of the temple is rent asunder, and God shows us his face in the gospel, even in the person of his Son, so that we now walk as at noonday. So then let us consider what is everlasting and what is but temporary, that we make no fond and foolish confusions as the papists do. For that is the foundation from which so many superstitions arise. When the papists baptize, they take spittle. Why? Because Jesus Christ did so, Mark 7.33. Yes, but did he draw as a consequence that men should make a rule of it, and that his miracle should be mocked at in baptisms? Will they make a young infant to speak by their spittle on his lips? Again, they have the healing of the sick, and it is a sacrament to them. Why? Because the apostles used oil when they healed the sick. Yes, but that gift was only for the beginning of the gospel age, and afterwards miracles ceased. Should we use these signs still, knowing this? Is this not a mocking of God? I suppose, then, that the truth and substance of things must depart, and the signs must remain. What a brilliant idea! Again, they hold to other things such as Lent. This is the fast that is to be kept, say the papists. The reason is because Jesus Christ fasted. Yes, but did he who is the fountain of all perfection and the mirror of all holiness fast every year? 
No, he fasted but once in his life. The papists say that we must fast every year, and that there is a great devotion and holiness therein. But in doing so, they would exceed Jesus Christ. Surely this is a devilish superstition, to fast forty days after this manner, on the opinion that by this means we may make ourselves like Christ. For we know that our Lord Jesus meant to show by this that he was at that time accepted from the general condition of all men, as the same was done to Elijah by miracle, and likewise to Moses when he published the law. And did the Jews follow Moses and Elijah therein? Did any of the many holy prophets ever fast that fast? No, for they knew well that it was not commanded them of God, and that he made no common rule of it, and they knew that he did not want them drawing into the force of law matters he had ordained for one time only. So then, we see that it is very profitable to consider what God has commanded for one time only, so that we do not pervert everything, or desire to do whatsoever is contained in Holy Scripture, without making any distinction, without knowing first whether the matter concerns us and is spoken to us or not. This is one point to be noted. The Unity of the Faith A second point to be observed is that we ought, as much as we possibly can, to maintain unity and agreement among ourselves, as we shall declare by and by. It was God's will that there should be only one temple. Why? Because he wanted it to be a bond to hold the people together in the purity and soundness of the faith. Quote, We have only one God who is called upon among us, and we must come into one certain place to sacrifice to him, and all of us must gather together there. It is indeed true that we are not nowadays tied to any such a system. But no matter what the circumstances are, yet the substance remains for us. Let us therefore take heed unto every aid we have to hold us in this communion of faith and in this unity that God requires. Let us keep them well, and let no man turn aside from them. Concerning the outward order of things, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ would have men to assemble themselves together. I grant that we are not bound all to be in one place, and men also preach in various churches in one town. Why? Because the whole world cannot be present to hear one sermon. Yet for all that, because of our slowness we are so bound that we must gather ourselves together in the name of God. He who wants to stay at home, despising the common order, and says, I can read at home, and edify myself sufficiently there, that man breaks asunder the unity of the faith and tears in pieces the body of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his strength. We know that baptism was ordained to serve as a common seal that we are the church of God and are governed by his spirit. Now, if every man wants to have his baptism performed separately, what a wicked disorder that would be. The Holy Supper of the Lord is also distributed as a common food so that we should all communicate of it. We are warned by it that we are one body. And as one loaf is made of many grains of wheat, which are so mingled together that they make but one substance, even so ought we to be knit together, if we want to be counted as the children of God. Therefore, if every man wants to have his own separate, private supper, is this not a withdrawing of themselves from the community and brotherhood that Jesus Christ would have us to keep? In popery, every man must have his altar and his chapel. Indeed, they were of the opinion that God was much bound to them for so doing. There should have been one communion table. I shall not go on to point out that they have turned the communion table into an altar to sacrifice upon, which thing in itself is a devilish abomination. But in the meantime, although they retain the terminology, yet they will not have a common table for all the church, 
For every man thrust himself in saying, Oh, I will have a chapel, and there I will have my devotions by myself. When men have come to this point, it is a horrible wasting of the church of God, and the building of so many altars has been the cause of the creation of so many sects and divisions. Even if the papists had placed no idols in their churches, and even if they did not have such a number of superstitions and idolatries as we see they have, yet, in doing this one thing, they have broken the unity Christ has solemnly set among his members, and in the whole church. What must we do then? Let us endeavor to keep ourselves in brotherly agreement, and under the signs and tokens God has given us, and let us continue in them, and make use of all those means he has given us to serve to that end. That is the teaching we have to gather from this place. Duty of Praise Let us now return to what we have said in the beginning, which is that God has required of his people a solemn acknowledgement of how much they were bound to him. We are therefore exhorted to acknowledge the benefits of God, and to occupy ourselves therein, so that we never forget them. The people had already given thanks to God after they had come out of Egypt in the wilderness, where they sacrificed continually to him. But all the same, after they passed over Jordan, they were to begin to give thanks again. Why? Because men tend always to discharge their duties to God by halves, and they soon forget them altogether, and no longer think about what they owe God. This is the reason why they are required to be occupied continually in God's service. So then, let us note well that during the entirety of our lives, we are to devote our whole endeavor to magnify and set forth the name of God. For although we are not lodged in this land of Canaan, yet the favor of God ought to be esteemed as highly by us, and indeed more so, than any earthly inheritance that was given to the children of Israel. For God, having plucked us out of the dungeons of death and out of the bondage of Satan, declares that we are blessed by him and that we are a royal priesthood. Who among us can discharge himself in magnifying so great and so inestimable a goodness of God? So then, because we are slow and slack to give that glory to God which he is due, and because when we have once done it, we think it enough and we are loath to do it again, let us bear in mind the lesson taught us here which is that just as God increases his gifts to us, and just as he confirms and ratifies them, so we on our part ought to be so much the more moved and stirred up to yield him praise, declaring thereby how much we are bound to him, and protesting that we are wholly his, and that we will dedicate our whole life to him. This, I say, is what we have to bear in mind concerning this passage, where mention is made of sacrificing to God. Gratitude Now, after Moses mentions the whole burnt offering, he adds, You shall offer also peace offerings to the Lord your God. Earlier on in the books of Moses, we are told that the peace offering served for thanksgiving, so that if God delivered his people, if he gave them any victory against their enemies, if he delivered them from famine or any other calamity, they sacrificed in witness that this benefit deserved not to be forgotten. We see then that Moses aims wholly at something we have already declared, namely that the people should make an acknowledgement of this benefit to God after they came into the land of Canaan. And when Moses says that it is a land flowing with milk and honey, it is, as we have already seen heretofore, for the purpose of stirring up the people to give glory to God when they see that the land is so fertile and that God has shown himself so liberal towards them. We know that at this present time it is not so fruitful a land, nor was it so fertile before their coming to it, 
and this is a wonderful thing. And yet notwithstanding, the wicked have taken occasion from this to blaspheme, so that wicked heretic, who was punished here, mocked both Moses and the prophets, saying that when they praised the land of Canaan, they were but setting out a fable. This man shows himself, as do all despisers of God, and such enraged persons as are possessed by Satan, to scorn God's benefits, which men may see with their eyes. Nor did he consider that God expressly threatened to salt that land, Psalm 107.34, which is to say, to make it barren, so that at this present day men see it desolate and waste, and he maintained his false opinion despite the fact that the matter was explained to him. At any rate, it is a dreadful thing to behold the condition of that country at the present time, in comparison with what it is known to have been like previously. The meaning of this is said in the Psalms, 107.37, is that when it pleases God to bless a land with fruitfulness, it will be fat and full of all manner of fruits, and contrawise, when he lifts up his hand to make it barren, it will be totally withered. We see this to be true in the land of Canaan. So then, let us note here that Moses meant to show more particularly the favor God showed to his people in nourishing them in a land that, a man might say, was flowing with milk and honey, showing by this figure that this was done by miracle. Now, for our part, while it is true that we shall not be fed fat in respect to our bodies, yet, in feeling the spiritual benefits God so largely bestows on us, we ought to be moved and stirred up to this consideration that when we have stated as solemnly as possible that we are His, and that we owe all to Him, yet we are not performing even the hundredth part of our duty of gratitude. The Duty of Obedience Turning now to the great stones on which God commanded His law to be written, which we have alluded to earlier, let us note that God intended to hold His people under His obedience by any means He might. For men, by reason of their infirmities, need to be kept in awe and to be called back to God, so that they do not swerve aside from him. I have already made a comparison to the ensigns of princes, instead of which God would have his law to be written. Why? Because his laws are his true ensigns, and his word is the lively image wherein we ought to behold him. And that is why he says, You shall come and present yourselves before my face. When in fact they presented themselves before the Ark of the Covenant in which the law was enclosed. For God refused to be represented to men by any other shape than the continual instruction of his word, as we have already seen in our sermon on Deuteronomy 4.12, where it is said, Remember that you saw not the shape of a man, or of any creature whatsoever, but you heard the voice of God. Take heed, therefore, lest you counterfeit anything in this regard. Now that we understand the text, let us note that when our Lord vouchsafes to have his word preached in any place, and gives us peace and quiet as by his own hand, it is so that we might do him double homage. All those who live in the world and are fed and sustained by God ought to confess that he is worthy to have all sovereignty over them. But we have a special privilege from God, and we are separated from the rest of the world, and who have his word preached to us, and who have freedom to call on his name in purity, shouldn't we enforce ourselves to do him double homage for it? Surely this ought to be thoroughly considered nowadays. How greatly has God favored us? We may use his sacraments with all liberty, and we have our ears filled every day with the doctrines of salvation, so that he continually calls us to himself. On the other hand, we see many wretched people who are held in bondage under the tyranny of the Pope, and dare not open their mouths or make the least endeavor to worship God in purity. They have neither churches to resort to, nor any means to be taught. 
The whole world sees this. So then we ought indeed to have the ensigns of God, whereby the law should be presented. Unfortunately, we see the reverse. For as soon as any man comes near to us, here in Geneva, we should perceive a wonderful change in us, because we have withdrawn ourselves from the defilements of the unbelieving. But whereas men should see that God reigns and bears rule among us, and has his seat and throne with us, they may actually see us as loose in living as the most ignorant people in all the world. Nay, a man may see that God is defied by some of them to whom the gospel is preached, and that there are worse devils and more wicked men among them than in the deepest dungeons of popery. Surely this deserves a double woe, for it is not only to the Jews that Moses has spoken, but it is to show all in general that since God vouchsafes to us the favor to be his, we ought to remove all corruption from among us, that men may know that we are indeed his people. This does not, of course, excuse those who live in popery. No matter how much they are threatened, so that they are not able to make a free confession of their faith without danger of death, yet they are always guilty of offending God in that they have not honored him. Now, if there is no excuse for them, how much greater will be our condemnation? For there is nothing to hinder us from serving God except our own wickedness and negligence. So then, let us be diligent to discharge our duty, not as touching the outward ceremony of great stones as commanded here, but in respect to the thing God has a special eye on, namely, that every one of us should not only yield himself to his obedience and dedicate himself to follow his will, but also that with one common accord we should show that he is our sovereign king and that we are under his government. And because he has put us in a place where his name is openly called upon and where there are churches for us to come together to make our common prayers and to confess our faith, let us also endeavor to walk in such a way that men may indeed know that those places are not defiled, but reserved to the glory of him who has chosen them for his use. The Ensigns of God Now for the end and conclusion. Let us note that our Lord does not want his ensigns to be blazed in just any sort of way that men like, but he will have his own image to be set forth in it, and that is why he speaks purposefully of the law. Thy words, he says, of the law. The papists have chapels, crosses, and bright paintings, and they think that God is represented by them, but God has no liking for those things. We must return to the word, which is the means by which God opens himself to us and he will be known by it. Let men therefore content themselves simply therewith. Now concerning the injunction, let those words be well engraved. Hereby we are taught that God did not give his law for a few people, but meant that it should be a common teaching to all, both great and small, even to the most simple-minded, and that all should be instructed by it. And if this was the case in the time of the law, by greater reason it ought nowadays to be in force among us who live in the new covenant. For it is said that the gospel is to be preached to all creatures. God will not allow his teachings to be locked up, so that none but the clergy should thrust their nose into it. But he wants all to be his scholars, and the law to be written so that every man may read it. Why? So that all men should receive instruction from it. Let none, therefore, exempt themselves from the reading of it, as we see many do, saying, Oh, I am no clerk. I never went to school. Reading does not pertain to my occupation. I grant readily that it is not every man's occupation to be a teacher, but who may exempt himself from being a scholar in the word of God? 
A man might as well renounce Christianity as to say, Oh, as for me, I know neither A nor B. I am illiterate. So how can I tell what the law of God or any of Holy Scripture means? Nevertheless, the will of God as declared to us in His Word is written in letters big enough. And although nowadays we have no heap of stones set up for the law of God to be written and engraved upon, yet notwithstanding our Lord meant to show in this symbolism that when He delivered His Word, it was so that we should be taught and ordered by it, and that the teaching thereof should be common to all. And truly, we have no less need to nourish our souls with the word of God than we have to sustain our bodies with bread and other daily food. Seeing that this is so, let every one of us labor in the way, and let us be attentive to hearken to our God when he speaks to us by the mouth of the minister, and when we have his holy scripture, let every man endeavor to be taught by it. Those who have no skills to read themselves, let them hear it read, that we may show that since our Lord speaks to us, we are ready to receive whatever he says, and desire nothing else except to profit under him in such a way that his word is not only engraved in stone and lime, but also imprinted on our hearts, so that in our whole life we seek to follow it, and give ourselves wholly to it. Prayer Now let us kneel down in the presence of our good God, with acknowledgment of the great number of faults and offenses that we cease not to commit daily against his majesty, praying him to make us feel them better than we have, so that we may endeavor to amend them more and more until we are clean rid of them. And since we obtain pardon from them by our Lord Jesus Christ, we may also increase and be confirmed in all righteousness and holiness, that so we may indeed confirm our calling. And let us pray him that since he has chosen us for his people, it may please him also to withdraw us from all the defilements of the world, so that we may be to him a holy people in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray that it may please him to grant this grace, not only to us, but also to all people and nations of the earth, etc.